Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. I just, it is an incredible time of worship, and I'm so thankful for uh, the worship team and the gifts that God has given them to draw us into the presence of God. I believe if you come here with an open heart and a ready mind that you're going to encounter God in a real way uh, when the church gathers together for worship. And, uh, and I just look forward to this time each and every week. For those of you that are new, my name is Joey. I'm the lead pastor here. I want to say uh, from my heart and uh, for the church, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, we have a philosophy here at Vertical Life Church. We believe everyone matters to God, which means you matter. And uh, we hope that the time you spend with us, you sense and you feel that, that, that you matter not just to God, but to us here. And I would challenge you to keep coming week after week, and see what God is doing here, what God has in store for you, and, and get a, a chance to get to know us, and allow us to get a chance to get to know you, and I think you'll find that you're among friends and family, and uh, so we welcome you here today. Uh, we are uh, in week two of this series, Hope, and Luke, I've got a lot of ringing up here. Um, we're in week two. We started this series last week uh, on hope, and uh, hope is... Uh, it is a feeling of expectation or a desire for a certain thing to happen. And hope is that, is that driving force inside of you that helps you to kind of continue to lead your life in a positive direction. And last week when we talked about hope, we talked about how God has given us a hope, a blessed hope, like a sure anchor for our souls. It keeps us uh, steady. It keeps us in place so that when the storms of life come, we don't get knocked, knocked off course or knocked uh, off direction, that it keeps us steady in this life of faith and on this faith journey. But more than just keeping us in place, it also leads us somewhere. It leads us into a deeper and greater connection with God and into a deeper relationship with our Creator, to where we know that not only are we known, but that we are loved and chosen for a great purpose. And last week, we, we talked about how there is hope for yesterday, that sometime in our life, usually when we're younger, we feel like God has placed a call in our lives or that we've been created for a purpose. We were meant to do something great. And for each one of us, that's different. You know, for you, maybe it's, uh, it wasn't being an athlete or a musician. For some, it was starting their own business. You know, whatever it is that you felt like God was calling you to do, we have those dreams. We, we have those aspirations, those goals, and, and we even begin to pursue those. And then something happens to derail those goals and plans. We mess up. We make mistakes. And just like last week, we talked about Abraham and Sarah and how God had spoken this great dream and vision over their lives. And then what did they do? When God didn't come through when he wanted, they wanted him to come through, when he didn't do it exactly the way they wanted, they got a little hopeless and a little impatient, and they took matters into their own hands, and they made a great mistake. And that's what happens with each and every one of us. A little hopelessness leads us to faithlessness, where we say, you know what, God? I don't know if I can wait on your timetable. I don't know if I can just hang in with what you want me to do because I just don't see it working out, so I'm going to kind of go in my own direction. And when we do that, we open the door to brokenness in our lives. And when that brokenness comes in, either by mistakes that we've made or by those that have been made against us by some other person because we were outside of the will of God, our enemy swoops in and begins to attack us with all sorts of thoughts and negativity like, oh, you messed up. You're in trouble. You're never going to amount to anything. You made a mess of your life. What good are you now? 
God can't use you. And you know what? God might not even love you because of what you did. And we all deal with these struggles and these issues in our lives. But what we saw last week, just like with Abraham and Sarah, the cross of Jesus Christ was the cosmic do-over that God gave us to have another chance. You see, when, when, when Jesus came and gave his life on the cross, it wasn't just to provide us forgiveness of our sins or to make us right with God. It was to allow us to have a redo, a start over, so that in Christ, the old things that are in our life, the mistakes that we've made, could be just that, past, over, done with. Scripture says that when we are forgiven, that God separates us from our mistakes as far as the east is from the west, that he doesn't even remember our sin. It's a clean slate. It's a start over. So there is hope for yesterday. And we saw in Romans chapter 11 that the giftings and callings that God uh, puts on our lives, they're never withdrawn because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what he plans and purposes for your life is his will and desire for you. And when we let our mistakes and the things of the past get in the way of that, then it prevents us from following in God into those plans and those blessings that he has purpose for our life. When we give up on hope, we let those mistakes and the mess that we've made uh, draw us back or cause us to shrink back, we end up failing to live in the blessings that God has prepared. And that's why faith and hope is so important. Why hope is so important because God uses hope to take our mess and turn it into something beautiful for his glory and our good. Hope is the fuel to the fire within us. Hope is the fan to the flame. Hope is what keeps us from buckling under the pressure when life gets really difficult and keeps us going. It says, keep going, keep trying, get back up and go again. And the cross of Jesus Christ allows us to have that do-over. And I don't know what you're just dealing with today. I know we all have things in our issue, in our past, issues in our past, but maybe today you walked in here today and you're going through a trial. You have a decision to make and you just don't know which way to go. And the fierceness of that trial, the, the, the issues that you're dealing with, you're like, you know what, I don't know if I have the hope or even the faith to get through this. Pastor Joey, I barely got out of bed this morning and drug myself here. I wasn't even going to, but I just did on a whim because of the issues that I'm dealing with. I don't know if I can hope that my life could turn out better because what I'm getting ready to go into, what I'm getting ready to face, the decisions that I've got to make, I don't know if there's a good outcome either way. I've done this God thing. I've done this church thing. But you know what? I can't see how this is for my good. And there are times when we've all have felt like that. Let me encourage you today that there is hope Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, this is our key verse today. This is a verse I want you to highlight in your Bible. I want you to memorize this, chew on this this week. Right? Paul, he's talking to the church of Rome, and he says this. He says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. Hold the phone. Did you just catch that? We can rejoice when we run into problems and trials. I think Paul was sipping on grandpappy's cough medicine a little too much when he wrote this. I mean, problems and trials and rejoicing, those don't go hand in hand, right? That's like an oxymoron. That's a, 
that's a, a contradiction. When I'm going through problems and trials, the last thing on my mind is rejoicing. What's on my mind is I need out. I got to get away from this. This is too much pain. This is too much sorrow. When is this going to end? That's what's on my mind when I go through problems and trials. But Paul, what he's getting at here for us in just this first little phrase, we can rejoice too. What he's saying is that Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we look through life through a different lens. We look through life through a different lens. We look through life through a lens, not of fear, not of shame, not of guilt, not of weakness or offense. We look through life through a lens of hope. Verse 3, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. It says, for we know that they help us develop endurance. Endurance is that strength. It's that inner will that says, keep going when you feel like you have nothing left. It's what allows you to endure uh, even greater problems and struggles. I think of like even just working out. When you go to the gym and you work out, you're not just working out for that, that, that day. You're working to build towards something so that you can become stronger, so that you can endure more. You know, when people uh, train for triathlons, they, they go and they, they work out tirelessly. Why? So when that moment of truth comes, you have what it takes to get through. Uh, last summer, uh, my family, my, my in-laws rented a cabin up north at Secord Lake, and we were up there, and some of our friends joined us, and we took a little boating trip to this rope swing that was supposed to be like the, the big hangout for everybody. And uh, so we're like, oh, let's try something new. We had all the kids with us, so we hopped on the pontoon, and we, we drove, it seemed like an eternity, to, uh, to get there, but uh, even had to stop for gas along the way. It was, it, was, it was a long distance. But we get there, and, and there's like no place to dock, right? Everyone's just like uh, anchored in offshore so that, they, you know, they swam to the shore to get to the rope swing. So uh, there's a ton of people there. We anchor offshore, and uh, we're just hanging out. We're like, okay, you know, it's, we're close enough to where it seems like we could swim there. All the kids had floaties, so if they wanted to do the rope swing, they could just kind of drift their way onto shore. And uh, my friend Rick and I, we get, we get out where uh, the, our wives go first, and they, they get there, and they do the swing, and we, it was all fun watching them. And then so we were like, you know, we can't let the girls do it and us not get out. So we, we get out in the boat. We get in the water. I'm like, okay, this is no big thing. I've been going to the gym. I'm pretty, I'm pretty fit. You know, I could swim this. And so uh, we, we start swimming, and I get about halfway there, and I'm like, man, this is taking me a while to get to the shore. And I was tired, I was out of breath, and I was like, I was swimming with all my might, like, man, I'm just going to bust this out, I'm going to get there, but I'm like, giving it all I got, and I barely am halfway there, and I'm like, I'm tired, I don't, I mean, how much further do I need to go? And so I started thinking, well, this, you know, I could probably touch, and maybe just kind of walk my way in there. So I go uh, straight up and down to try to touch, and there's nothing. And so now I'm panicking. The, the seaweed grabs my feet, and it's like the tendrils of an octopus sucking me down. And I'm like, what is going on? So now I'm starting to panic. My anxiety's through the roof. My heart's beating. I start dog paddling for all, I can, all my might, for all I can. And I finally eventually get to the, the beach. And I feel like, you know, someone who, uh, you know, stranded at, at sea for years and, you know, months and months and wants to kiss the ground. I was like, oh, thank you, God. I almost just died in front of my whole family. That was going to be horrible. You know, I get there, and, and, and I stand up, and I'm like, okay, act like nothing was wrong. Act like, you know, you know you're, you're good to go. And I'm standing up there, and I'm shaking. I can barely stand. I'm just like, oh, my goodness. That was, how, how, how am I going to get back? 
You know, but I, I thought I was strong enough to get there. I thought I could do it because of how I've been training. I didn't realize how much energy and how tough just swimming, you know, maybe 30 feet was going to be or 40 feet was going to be. And it was, it was a tough deal. And I realized that I needed endurance to do that. And I and also realized that maybe I needed to take my time going back and I wouldn't have wasted so much energy. But I learned something. I learned how to do it so that I could get back and be just fine. And on my way back, I even helped my kids get back in the boat. So I was good to go. But this is what endurance does. It makes us stronger. It makes us able to handle more. It gives us a, a knowledge of our situation so that we can continue on and be okay on the other side of the trial. Trials help us develop endurance. And then endurance then does something. Verse 4, he says, endurance develops strength of character. What strength of character is, that is the ability to make the right decision in the right moment. When you're being tested, when you're being kind of set before a couple of choices, honor God or not, strength of character says, I will not crumble, I will not fail, I will give God my all, and I will do His will no matter the consequences. No matter what trials I come against, God's will is what will be done in my life. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's the ability to make the right decision at the right moment. And endurance leads us to have that character. And then look what character does. Character does what? Strengthens our, say that church, our confident hope of salvation. Strength of character strengthens our confident hope. Say confident hope. It's not a weak hope. It's not a fearful hope. It's not a shame-filled, guilt-filled, I don't know how things are going to pan out hope. No, it's a confident hope. And notice the trials that we experience do not create the hope. Why? Because the hope is already there. What do trials do in our lives? It strengthens our confident hope. How does it do that? It's because when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we put his will first above all else, and we enter into trials. What we discover is that his word is actually true, that he is a faithful God, and that he is, has the power to rescue and has only our good in mind. He has our best intentions at heart. It validates our faith. Look at verse 5. Look what it says. It says, and this hope will not lead to disappointment. Repeat that with me. This hope will not lead to disappointment. Do it again. This hope will not lead to disappointment. Get it deep down in here today, church. This hope will not lead to disappointment. Why? For we know how dearly God loves us. And because he has given us the Holy Spirit, to fill our hearts with his love. Our hope will not lead to disappointment because the Lord of heaven's armies, the creator of all we survey, loves us with a never-ending, never-failing, never-giving-up-on-us kind of love, which makes our hope a never-ending, never-failing, never-giving-up-on-us kind of hope. There is hope for yesterday overcome the past. And I'm here today, church, to declare to you that there is hope for today. Tap your neighbor right now. It's participation time. Tap your neighbor and tell them, I'm glad you came today because there is hope for you today.
Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we open your word, let this sink into our hearts. God, there is hope. We don't look through a lens of fear, a lens of guilt and shame. We don't look through the lens of the world, God. We look through a lens of hope. So let hope rise in our hearts today as we open your word and we take a look at a story that you've left here for us, God. Let it penetrate our hearts and that we leave here today filled up with hope, filled up with the Holy Spirit. And God, I pray if there's someone here today that yet has yet to encounter that hope that is found in Jesus Christ, that they would meet him today and that you would radically transform their lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 3. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. Uh, the verses will also be on the screen. We're going to look at another very familiar story. Matter of fact, the, the stories that we're going through in this series have been talked about the last few weeks through the different speakers. In Daniel chapter 3, we're going to be talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, when John Zofko preached, he, he referred to uh, the VeggieTales version. So if you're more familiar with VeggieTales, this is Rack, Shack, and Benny. Okay? This is Rack, Shack, and Benny. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we're just going to read the story, and then we're going to talk through kind of what's going on here a little bit. Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord records this. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. So all these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald shouted out, People of all races, nations, and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments... Bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bowed to the ground and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jews. They said to the King Nebuchadnezzar, Long live the king. You issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments. That decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. There are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage, and he ordered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I've set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be immediately thrown into the blazing furnace, and then what God will be able to rescue you from my power. These three Hebrew guys, Rack, Shack, and Benny, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were now caught in a very tense situation. Not only were they plucked out of their homeland when the Babylon came in, Babylonian kingdom came in and, and took over the nation of Israel, Nebuchadnezzar took thousands of people captive. That was kind of his thing. He would conquer a land. He would take the best and brightest from the land. He would then educate them, train them, set them up in high places in his kingdom so that his kingdom could be unstoppable. And for a time, it was. They were the most powerful nation on the earth at that time. 
And here he did the same thing. These three guys, they were plucked out of their nation. They were educated, they were trained, and they were set up as officials over the, the province of Babylon. And now because of this decree, this gold statue, they were caught in a very tense situation. Now these guys, they weren't just uh, common slaves, right? They weren't uh, dying of heat under the noonday sun, slaving away to build the kingdom. No, these were uh, men who were in places of prominence. They were under the microscope of the nation. He had put them in places of authority. These are the guys that they probably had uh, a lot of affluence, wealth. They probably had some of their own servants. These were the guys that the paparazzi wanted to follow and take snapshots of everywhere they went, right? They were popular guys. They just weren't just random Jews that got picked on. They were very prominent in the nation of Babylon. And here, as they were uh, placed in this awkward position, they were uh, pinned up against standing up for God or following the crowd. Do what everyone else is doing or be alone. And I think of you know, being younger and even in, in high school or junior high and even you know, some of our uh, teenagers even now that are learning the word of God. There are times where as a young person you look at people that you would consider popular. The, the in crowd, they, they were the more attractive group. They were the more athletic group. They seemed to have all, all, all the people wanted to be in their group, and I can remember wanting to be a part of that group, being liked and being included among those people. And I, and I think even as adults, we do the same thing. As we look at who we think is probably a little bit more uh, uh, popular than others, we say, hey, wouldn't it be great to be in that group? And then people would think of me in that same way. Then I could be included with them, and then I could be looked at and respected and admired from afar. And we kind of have that feeling even, even as adults because we feel left out whenever we're not included in those groups. But the thing that happens, though, when you, when you try to uh, fit in with, with different groups of people, you know, I remember even, even as a young person, you start to kind of change the way you dress, change the music you listen to, you kind of change your hobbies, and, and you, you try to do things to get you noticed so that you can be included in those groups. And... Uh, when you do that and you begin to try to fit in with those people, what happens when you try to fit in is you usually end up just blending in. You know, I remember that uh, all my friends that I hung out with in, in high school, you know, we wanted to be individuals. That was our thing. We wanted to be unique. We wanted to be an individual. But yet we all had the same haircut, wore the same clothes, and there was nothing unique about any of us. You know, and so that's what happens when you try to fit in is you end up blending in. And I heard one time uh, a pastor said that if you want to stand out, if you want to be noticed, it's usually the ones that stand up for God and say, you know what, I'm not going to follow the crowd. I'm going to do what's right no matter what. I'm going to stand up for God no matter what. And if that means not being in that crowd, then I'm not going to follow that crowd. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to make wise decisions. I'm going to trust the word of God. I'm going to try to live a biblical life as best as I can and put God first in all my ways, in all my goings. And to stand up. Those are the ones that get noticed. But the problem is, and re the reason why so many of us, you know, we'd rather kind of fit in than stand out is because the ones that stand out and take that stand usually become a target. You're isolated and alone, and you become a target. People don't look at you necessarily with, oh, man, how great. They look at you as, oh, man, how weird. What's wrong with them? Why won't they do the things we do? They must think they're better than us. They must think that they've got something over us. 
just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, out of all the other Jews, all the other Hebrews that were taken into captivity, only three stood up for God? I mean, think about this. this. This group of people, they were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. That was the most powerful nation on the earth at that time. And they were in slavery. And their God not only rained down fire from heaven, unleashed the ten plagues of Egypt, but he separated the waters of the Red Sea where they could walk across the, the, the sea on dry ground. And when the, the army pursued after them, he crashed the, the walls of water back on top of the army, destroying the Egyptian army, laying waste to that nation, decimating their economy, and rescuing them from their captors. That's the God that they served. And now they're facing another powerful nation. And knowing what God they served, only three stood up. See, that fear of being isolated, singled out, and becoming the target is a real thing. And I can think of probably many of them were like, you know what, I know God said don't have any other gods before me. I know God said we should not worship any other God but the Lord our God. And so God, I know this looks bad, but it's a really dangerous thing if I don't bow, and so I'm going to bow with my body. Just know I'm not bowing with my heart. And even though many of them were probably well-intentioned, when you looked at the crowd, all you saw was a blending of people. Whether or not they wanted to bow with their hearts, they blended in because they made the choice not to stand up, not to stand out. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they chose to stand out. They were standing up for God, literally. They knew they were not going to have any other gods before them. And it didn't matter what king and what nation declared otherwise, they were going to fear God more than the posturing of one of God's own creation. And here they did. They stood up, and the tattletales of Babylon said, oh, we're going to go rat on you guys. They go and tell the king. King Nebuchadnezzar gets angry and upset, and rightfully so, because here he plucks them out of their nation, but instead of enslaving them and causing them to be in poverty and destitution, he elevates them, gives them money, gives them affluence, gives them training, gives them authority and power in his kingdom. So how dare they be insubordinate after all the king had done. And so he was rightfully angry with them. And so he calls this meeting, brings them uh, uh, in front of him and says, you know what, y you guys have no business doing this to me. How dare you defy me like this? But for whatever reason, he decides to have a graceful moment and he decides to give them one more chance. Look at verse 15. And let's look closely at what he says. He says, I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I've made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you'll be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when my favorite band begins to play my jam, you bow. Because if you don't, what God will be able to rescue you from my power? See, when we face the trials of today, when we face trials, we go through struggles, this is what Satan wants us to think. What God is going to rescue you from my power? This is why temptation happens. This is why that inner struggle, that inner battle happens, because Satan swoops in in that moment of decision, and he says, 
you're caught now between a hard rock and a hard place, believing me or believing God. And Satan begins to poison our minds with all these lies and all these deceptions because what he's trying to do is he's trying to make us believe that the fierceness of our trial is greater in our eyes than the power of the one that can actually save us in our eyes. This is what he does. This is why he lies. This is why he deceives. This is why his mission is to steal, kill, and destroy. Because if we can believe him, if he can get us to consider what he's saying, then we will believe him, we'll end up doing what he says, and then he can work out his destructive patterns in our lives. So when we face trouble, when we face trial, he tries to get us to believe the fierceness of our situation is greater than the power of the one who can actually save us. And this happens all the time in our culture and in daily life. But we know in the scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, that God has a perfect plan for marriage. That God designed marriage to not only be the human relationship to, to, flirt, to bring flourishing to all of life. He created one man, one woman in the context of eternal covenant so that we could bring the world to life. That was his plan. So that we could, uh, we could bring uh, peace and prosperity to not just plants but animals in the entire world. That was his plan. But he also uses the marriage covenant to represent Christ and the church. That there's an eternal relationship between God and his people forever and forever and forever. And so within that context, God set up that we are to have no sexual activity outside of that context. That context of holy marriage. Because anything outside of that is against his will. It's sin. It's adultery. It's idolatry against God. That's why he accused the nation of Israel time and time again of adultery when they would worship other gods. Because they were breaking the, the metaphor or the symbolism of what marriage is. Marriage is a reflection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he has declared in his word that the marriage bed is what is undefiled. That is the truth. And when we honor God with the way we set up our lives and the way we live our lives, he leads us toward what Jesus came to provide, which was the overflowing, abundant life. The blessing. Immense blessing. But Satan comes in and he begins to mess with those things. And so we have... You know, this happened probably, you probably remember situations like this in your own life where you have a young lady and a young man beginning to date and start out, you know, just relationships in general. And, and the young lady, she'll say, you know what, I'm going to commit to being pure. I'm going to live my life the way God wants me to live. I'm going to be pure and I'm going to save myself until I'm married. And she starts dating this guy that doesn't have the same idea. And he says, you know, well, I love you. I, you know, I want to be with you. So why don't you want to sleep with me? And she's like, well, I'm going to save myself till I'm married because I want to honor God with my life. And he's like, well, if, if you don't love me back, then I'll just go somewhere else. And now she's in a trial. She's thinking, well, you know, I want to honor God, but here, if, if I don't sleep with him, then he's going to leave me. And I don't know if that rejection, that pain of rejection or that loneliness is really, you know, it, I, I think that's going to be greater than giving in to what he wants and the consequences of not following God. And so the enemy begins to swoop in and say, yeah, you're right. If, if you don't do what he says, he's going to leave you, and that's going to be painful, and you don't want to live that way. And, you know, it's just sex. It's not that big a deal. And so she gives in because the enemy is poisoning her mind to get her to think contrary to the word of God. We have other situations like, like, like taxes. It's tax season now. 
you know, are you telling me, Joey, I have to report all of my finances on my taxes? I mean, I'm not making that much money, and I really need my money. And if I report all of my finances, that government's going to take too much, and then I'm going to struggle. And I think that if I don't report all of my money, then that'll be better in the long run, even if I get audited, than making the other choice to honor God and being honest in all the things that I do. Are you sure, Pastor Joey, abortion is always wrong? Because I know I made a mistake, but I'm not really ready to be a parent, and I think it would be worse for the child to grow up in a, in a, in a home where I'm the parent and I'm not ready versus putting an end to their life than dealing with that choice. There's so many things that we encounter in this life where we're pinned between believing what God said is true versus what the enemy wants us to believe. Believing that the fierceness of our situation is greater than the power of the one that can actually rescue us and turn a bad situation into a good one for his glory and our good. This is the way the enemy works. And here, as he's speaking through Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar says, then what God will be able to rescue you from my power. This is Satan in this moment using this man to plant seeds of doubt in the hearts of these three Hebrew men, in the hearts of Rack, Shack, and Benny. To make them believe there is no other choice. You got to give in. This is your temptation. You're being tempted. Yeah, steal that. You're hungry. You have no money. It's a candy bar. Who cares? Convenience store can write it off. Oh, it's just one click on the computer. No one's going to know. It's not that big a deal. We have these different situations, these different trials. Yeah, your marriage is falling apart, and that guy is paying a lot of attention to you. That's really what you want. You want someone who loves you and accepts you, and that's going to be better for you than working on your relationship. Satan plants these seeds of doubt deep within our hearts to get us to believe there is no other choice than the giving in to what he wants, but there is another choice. There is another choice than to believing that we are forced or have to go the way of the enemy. Look at verse 16 and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's response. They say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. You see, there is another choice than to believe the lies of the enemy in the trials that we face. The choice is to trust in Almighty God and choose to not compromise with what we know is true in His Word and according to His will. We don't have to give in. Paul tells us in the Church of Romans that we don't have to do or feel obligated to do what our sinful nature urges us to do, to believe in those lies, even when the stakes are high. And this is the choice that they made. They chose not to give in. Why? Because they had a confident hope, and their hope was in the Lord. They trusted in his power. They knew God could part the seas. They knew he could part the flames and protect them. He, they knew that God could deliver them. They had an overcoming hope. This hope is like an anchor for our souls, the writer of Hebrews says. It leads us past the veil into the innermost parts of God's sanctuary. It leads us into his presence and that literally happens in this story. As they stand up for God and thrown into the fire, three men go in, but yet four are in the flames because God was with them. Their hope led them, led them into his very presence. And see, this is why many of us struggle with our faith. 
Because if we were honest with ourselves, we would admit that we want to believe that God is who he said he is. We want to believe that the word of God is true. We want to believe, quote unquote, that his will is better for our lives. But because our hope really isn't in Christ the Lord, it's in what we can control and manipulate in our lives, we shrink back and end up falling prey to the temptation of the enemy. We wonder why the church thing doesn't work. We wonder why we keep struggling. It's because deep down our hope really isn't in Jesus. And we continue to walk around with an anemic and hopeless faith. Just struggle after struggle. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, the prophet Isaiah says this. He says, but those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They'll soar high on the wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. You see, when we face difficult trials, we have this promise from God that if our hope is in him, we will run and not grow weary. We're going to have that endurance that, that hope brings, that, that struggles and trials provide in our lives. We're going to get stronger. We're not going to become weak. We're not going to faint. We're not going to lose heart. But we're going to be stronger. We're going to continue to soar up and over our situation. And this is all due because of the faith we have in Jesus Christ. And this is the hope that comforted Rack, Shack, and Benny. This is the hope that they had because they knew that if they put their trust in God, that they could not fail, that they would not be overcome. Their hope came from knowing that our God is an awesome, can-do-the-impossible kind of God. That's who we serve. A A burning furnace was nothing for God. But more than having hope in what he can do, they also had a hope and who he is, because they knew that they could trust his heart. Look at verse 18. Verse 18, Daniel chapter 3. Even though they knew God could deliver them, this is what they say. They says, but even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you've set up. But even if he doesn't, So when we're faced with trials and circumstances, we just want to focus on the God can deliver us. But we're afraid of the but what if he doesn't moment. But what if he doesn't heal my cancer? But what if he doesn't heal my marriage? But what if he doesn't provide me a job so I can provide for my family? But what if he doesn't rescue my children from disastrous mistakes? But what if he doesn't? I know he can, but what if he doesn't? And we let the fear of those what if he doesn't moments keep us from putting our full faith and hope in the Lord and continuing to obey, standing on the foundation of the word of God, knowing what his will is for our lives. That what if he moment pulls us away because we let fear overtake the hope we have in Jesus Christ. Because we're afraid of what if he doesn't. You know, people ask this question all the time. I have this discussion a lot, especially when I'm talking about uh, the Lord with atheists and agnostics and people who don't believe. They'll say, well, why does God let bad things happen to good people? If God is so loving... Why does he let the bad things happen? My wife and I just the other day were talking about this, looking at people like Job. Job was a righteous man, did nothing wrong, and and God let Satan mess his life up. 
There are kings in the Old Testament that worked to bring revival in the nation of Israel. They honored God. They tore down the places of idolatry, and they restored honor and faith in the land. But yet God let them die at an early age when other kings who were wicked lived well beyond their years. Why does God let bad things happen to good people? And, and as I was doing my personal uh, time with God, my personal prayer time and study, he brought me to this passage in Isaiah chapter 57. Here's what he says. He says, good people pass away, but the godly often die before their time. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever said that? Maybe you knew somebody that died in a car crash or, or maybe an infant that was sick just after being born and passed away, and you say, man, they died before their time. Why did God let that happen? Why didn't God heal them? Why didn't God rescue them? I think we've all thought that one time or another. The prophet Isaiah answers. He says, no one seems to care or wonder why. No one seems to understand that God was protecting them from the evil to come. And those who follow godly paths will rest in peace when they die. Not only did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego trust who God was, his power, his might, what he could do, they also trusted his heart and knew that they could believe in him even if that but if he doesn't moment came to pass and God did not come through because they understood that their momentary pain would yield for them an eternity of peace. That their momentary pain, the struggles that they're going through, even if they succumbed to their trial and their problem, that on the other side of the pain, God had an eternity of peace. So they knew God's power and they understood God's peace. They knew that God, no matter what situation they faced, had their best interest at heart. Jeremiah 29, 11, God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah tells the nation of Israel, you're going to go through a trial for 70 years. It's going to be bad. It's going to be hard. But in verse 11, he says, but I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not disaster to give you a future and a hope. God knows what he has in store for you. He knows what's on the other side of your trial. He knows what peace is on the other side of the pain. You see, we just look through our lives through this worldly lens on what we, we can see, what we can taste, what we can touch, what we feel, how we, uh, all the emotions that come up when we enter in different circumstances in our lives. But our God looks through a heavenly lens, not a worldly lens. Isaiah 55 verse 9 says, just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Church, we don't see what God sees. We don't know what he knows. But what we do know is who he is and what he can do. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. In all your ways, seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. No matter what you're facing today, no matter what trials are on your way, no matter what decisions you have to make, you can trust God in all you do. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego trusted God with their trial. With all the hope they could muster, they defied the king, they stood their ground, and they got thrown into the flames. See, at first, before the trial, before their fiery trial, their hope comforted them. But now during the trial, their hope carried them. And that's the core concept of this message today. 
truth I want you to take with you today is God gives hope to comfort you so that when you face adversity, it will carry you. God gives hope to comfort you so that when you face adversity, it will carry you. Three men went into the furnace. Four men were counted in the flames because our hope leads us past the veil into God's presence. And when we're with God, no matter what we face, we will have hope and peace and everlasting joy. No one likes going through trials. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego probably wish they weren't in that situation, but they went through it honoring God each and every step of the way. And as they came out of those flames unharmed, their deliverance stood as a testimony to everyone around. Their story changed the culture of the nation. Look at uh, verse 28. It says, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. Their houses laid to ruins for what? There is no other God who can rescue in this way. There is no other God who can rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He took them up another level in the province of Babylon. You see, church, there is no other God. We do not serve the God of sex. He cannot rescue like our God. You can't serve the God of entertainment because he can't rescue like our God. The God of expensive clothes, the God of houses and land, of four-wheelers, of sports, and all the things that the enemy brings into our life to pull our hearts away from God. Not one of those things can deliver you from your trial. But I know a God who's powerful enough and good enough to come through and change your situation. I know a God who will not only take you through the fire, but will walk through it with you and see you through to the other side. Hope carries you through the trials so that God can raise you up another level. They didn't just stay the same. They weren't just the governors of the city of Babylon, they were elevated. They were increased. The trial produced endurance, and endurance produced godly character. And on the other side of that, their confident hope was increased as the king of Babylon set them up even higher. And I believe this is why God gives us trials in life, so that as we are strengthened, as we are encouraged, as we grow, our story will help change the culture of our families will change the culture of our city, will change the culture of our state, of our nation. God wants to use you in that trial so that on the other side, he can take you up another level and your life will make an impact on those around you as the gospel of Jesus Christ is revealed in you. And I'm here today, I don't know who's here, but I know I want to go up another level. I want God to use me to make an impact in the lives of those that I encounter each day that are far from God. And my hope is that you would have that same hope too. They would say, God, take me up another level. I don't care what it is I have to go through, but lift me up so that I can shine the glorious light on Jesus Christ and people far from you can come to know him as their Lord and Savior. See, when your hope is in the Lord, your hope will not only comfort you, but it will carry you through the fiery trials of this life because our God is an all-consuming fire and his flames engulf even the flames of our trials and struggles. 
Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, very familiar verses. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. That word reality can also be translated as substance. But we all know that faith is required for salvation. Paul said in Ephesians 2 that it's by God's grace we're saved by our faith. When we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God's grace flows down and washes all the sin away. It's what provides salvation. Without faith, we cannot receive the grace. Faith is a really important thing. Faith is required for salvation. But notice in this verse, the writer of Hebrews reveals to us that faith is the byproduct of hope. Faith is what develops in a person when they place their hope in Jesus Christ. When you realize, you know what? Jesus is who he said he is. He's the son of God. He rose from the dead. When that realization happens, you then begin to see, well, if Jesus rose from the dead, then, huh, this word must be true. It must be real. You know, so I can put my trust in that. And you begin to change the way you live based on the word of God and the Holy Spirit's work in your life. And so faith begins to be revealed in you as your hope is solidified in you. Faith is not only a byproduct of hope, but it's also the evidence to the world far from God that there is one who is worthy to put our hope in. Faith is a big deal, but faith comes when we place our hope in the Lord. And maybe you're here today, and again, you don't feel like there's much faith left. You don't feel like you've got the strength to make it through another day. Your strength is gone. Your optimism is run dry. A situation and maybe a series of circumstances you've been going through lately has left you feeling like, you know what, I'm just ready to quit altogether. Throw in the towel. I'm just ready to walk away. Let me encourage you. that if Faith is a byproduct of hope. You cannot act on your faith if you don't first have hope in the truth. The truth is that our God can and will deliver. That his power is great enough and his peace is strong enough. Revelation 21 verse 5, Jesus says, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. Jesus tells us to write this down. I'm making everything new. Why? He wants us to bet our life on this statement. He wants to put everything we are, take this to the bank, to count on this statement that he is making all things new. That when we place our hope in Christ, we know he's at work in our lives. And right now, I don't know what you're dealing with, what trial you're facing, but you are at the moment of truth like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the struggle that you're facing, the enemy is saying to you, wherever you are, don't change. Don't give in. Don't believe. Because if you do, I'm going to bring the pain. And what I'm going to bring into your life is greater than the one who can save you. But Jesus is saying, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life. I am making all things new. Trust me. Cling to me. Hold on to me. Follow me. And see what's going to happen through the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. In John 16, Jesus says, I've told you all of this. So you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. And Jesus, through his finished work on the cross, has won for you the right to everlasting peace. And so there is hope for yesterday over the things that have come and gone, but today there's also hope for today, knowing that if we trust 
his power, and we trust his heart. We obey his will and his word. If we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives, as we cling to that hope, walking by faith, that we too will overcome these trials because he has overcome the world. Let's bow our heads in this place today as we go into a time of response. God never promises a problem-free life. But he does promise to walk through it with us every step of the way. And there's so many things that we encounter, so many situations that we encounter in this life, so many trials that we go through, whether it's financially, whether it's through our health, through our relationships. The trials of this life seem difficult. Sometimes it feels like they're never ending. Sometimes it feels like at any minute we could succumb to our struggles. But that's why Jesus came to the cross. He came to the cross to give us hope, hope that will redirect our negative thoughts towards the positive, that will give us that strength to get up and keep going. And then when we walk in faith, he has promised to move mountains in our lives. I don't know what you're dealing with today, but what I do know is there is a God who is strong enough to save and who's good enough to provide the way. In just a moment, when the music begins to play, after we pray, I'm going to invite you to come down to the front and just kneel down here like an old-fashioned altar and cast your burdens and cares on the Lord. I believe that when God's people respond to the word that something happens, there's a shift that begins to happen in your life. When you begin to take that first step of faith and say, you know what, God, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I'm going to come down and I'm going to lay myself down here. I believe the work of God begins to happen in your heart even before you hit the front of the stage. There's somebody in here today that needs an encounter with God, that needs to, for hope to rise in their hearts. And my prayer is that today you decide to make a decision for the Lord. Maybe you're here today and you've never, there's never been a time in your life where you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's never been a time where you said, you know what, God, I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of living this life on my own. I'm tired of trying to figure things out in my own way because I keep making mistakes. I keep messing things up. Today, I'm going to choose to trust in Jesus. I'm going to put my hope in the one I know who can save me. Today, I'm going to commit my life to you, and I'm going to follow you for the rest of my days. And by the authority of the word of God, when you make that decision, not only will you be saved, not only will you become a new creation, but hope will rise in your hearts, and you're going to come alive in ways you never thought possible. God's going to do a transforming work in your life. And if that's you here today, you've never trusted in Christ. When we stand, when the music plays and the altar is open for prayer, come down here and find me. I'd be honored to introduce you to the one who can change your life. Father, I just pray for everyone here on the sound of my voice. God, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that we have a hope that will not only comfort us before the trials, but that will carry us through when adver adversity comes. God, I pray even now for those that are struggling, those that, that are doubting, those that just don't know where to go from here, God, that your Holy Spirit would just fall on them. The peace would fill their hearts and minds. God, and you would help them to understand as they just trust in you.
and obey your word. Things will work out for their good and for your glory. God, I thank you for the work that you've already begun and the miracles you're getting ready to unleash in this place. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.